I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with a relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This town is a sanctuary. Every man worth the name knows the value of being unreachable. It'd be a pity not to recognize what's at stake. Deadwood is back. And as Al Swearingen would say, it's about in time. The show that died too young is now a movie. And the return trip of Deadwood, the movie, set some 10 years later, gets down to unfinished business in the once lawless town in South Dakota. On this week's show, I talk with Ian McShane, the actor who brought the corrupt, foul-mouthed character of Al Swearingen to life, as well as director Daniel Minahan, who captured the now older and wiser characters meeting up again in a Deadwood poised on the edge of legitimacy. Diehard fans are sure to be pleased, especially since the series was unceremoniously canceled in 2006, despite its critical acclaim, leaving so many loose ends. But Minahan also told me that he made a film with an eye towards drawing newcomers back to the show's three original seasons. McShane said it wasn't a challenge to reprise his role. Swearingen is the kind of character people don't forget. Let's listen in. We're so excited today to have with us actor Ian McShane from Deadwood the Movie. Ian, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Mark. Before we get started, I'll just say that the film premieres on May 31st on HBO. Much of the cast was reunited, including Timothy Oliphant as Sheriff Seth Bullock, Molly Parker as the wealthy widow Alma Garrett, and Paula Malcolmson as the prostitute Trixie. And I'll be speaking with director Daniel Minahan in the second part of this episode. And while people are excited that Deadwood is back, there's a veil of darkness over its return. The show's creator and creative engine, David Milch, faced health challenges that changed the dynamics of the production. We'll hear more about that later in the interview. But first, when Deadwood, the original series, was canceled in 2006, did you feel like you had unfinished business with the character of Al Swearingen? Oh, yeah. I'll I'll think that for the rest of my life. (laughs) When you get a show like that, which proved to be three very intense really creative years of your acting career. I think it was the high spot in many ways because not often you get a chance to work with somebody like Milch. And that's why we're here. That's why, really why we're talking about him. Somebody whose gifts were as a showrunner, as a teacher, as a, an instinctive kind of old-time producer. I mean, he sees the vision and the creative process was so incredible, also practical because not often are you on a film set where you can actually switch around on that set of Melody Ranch, which had all the writers there, the directors were there, the editors, the costumes, the horses. So David could switch on a dime and say, I'm not happy with this, or, or just say, carry on, I'm just going to write some more. Because David, writing was never the problem. It was an organic thing, to use that overused term. But it was, it grew all the time. So when you were rehearsing a scene, Milch would suddenly see an actor do something or whatever. He'd go, wait a second, I'll, you carry on. I'll be back in a, an hour. And then he'd give you some kind of extra dialogue, which yeah, then you would take and he'd tell you something else. And then the next day, something that happened on the set would also be included in the scene, something you had, you know, maybe in passing. 
you bang your foot or you bang your head or something, and suddenly the carriage next day would be banging his foot. Because Milch uses everything, which is remarkable. Also, he's got a bigger brain than anybody in the room, which is also very useful when you're doing a show. You have a showrunner who really is smarter than anybody else, you know? In the years since the show was canceled, there'd been talk of bringing it back, of doing a movie, and it seemed like that would sort of like ebb and flow and people would talk about it more or less. That's what it was. How surprised were you when this script finally arrived? Over the years, obviously, I'd see David a couple of times a year. We'd have a general breakfast with not just the actors, but some of the technical crew. We'd meet now and again. Still do, because we were friends. And the talk usually came from the cyber world. I mean, it was always talking, oh, when will they do it again? Or the, And it was never real until two years ago when David had played around with scripts and then came up with this idea of linking something back to the final episode, which I thought was a good way of not making it seem contrived. Because, you know, a difficult thing to our movie, mostly they don't work. They're either sloppily sentimental and everybody's the same as they were in the last episode or it's a sop to people and people very soon find that out. But so far the reaction's been, I think this works in the sense that you brought back the great Gerald McCraney. Gerald McCraney, who plays the ruthless industrialist turned senator George Hurst. God, he's a pain in the ass, Hurst, isn't he? A deliberate problem. Oh. But, you know, when you're faced with real power, which is what Hurst has, Swearingen's so smart about it, little victories are all you can really succeed. Hedging the show on Statehood Day, that South Dakota's got statehood, and people come back to Deadwood for all their own reasons. Charlie Udder to work his land there, Alma, because she's still got property there. And the characters intertwine in a way which seemed, as I said, not contrived. And they're not the same as they were. I mean, I'm glad that Milch saw Al as not the same guy as he was 13 years ago. None of us are. So some characters not doing so well, some are doing better. But the thrust of the story and the linkage of all the characters and back to this deed that happened in the town, which everybody knew about and sort of scarred the memories, I think works pretty well. And have you ever had an experience like this of returning to a character like this, especially after such a, a long period of time? No, I used to do. I, I produced my own show in England for years called Lovejoy, which is about an antique dealer back in the 90s, which is a very different kind of a show. An all-around family show with sort of comedic overtones. But they talk about doing it now, but I don't want to do that again. And was it difficult for you to kind of reaccess Al? No. What was it like to return to the character? No, oh, no, I just, you know, I just get up in the morning and say and drink a pint of whiskey and get on with it. No, that's not true. But it's virtually, you don't forget that kind of guy. I mean, I just finished American Gods. I had a month off to sort of grow the whiskers and get in the mood. And then I remember being driven up to the location the first morning in in darkness. Then you're going through the gates of Melody Ranch and at your trailer. I just said, give me the costume. And there it was, the same old, you know, Al's version of a business suit. And his version of a Long John's under it, whatever. And I just wanted a little baggy because Al's lost a little weight since last time. He's not quite the uh, dandy that he thought himself was in many ways. I didn't realize that the original version of the show was made in such an unusual way, that the, the pages were coming in sort of as you were shooting. I mean, it all came from a very organic place in David's head that he would write a scene and you'd be there for the first rehearsal and he'd watch it and he'd shape it with you and the director. And then he'd figure something out, which would affect future scenes. So in other words, he just grew all the time because he's so fertile, the way he approached the whole script. You always felt like you were 
out on a limb in a very good way. It was always changing. It was always shifting. It wasn't just like, oh, that's that scene. Now we've done that. We can move on. You moved on to something that was enriched by what you just done with everybody. And did that make the process of making the movie feel different? Like, how was the production this time different? They had the script. They had to have the script. And besides which circumstances had changed with David, etc. So HBO wanted a script. And I think we all did. It's a different beast. It's not like it was ongoing. It was just like trying to fine-tune this to our finite piece of writing into a tip of the hat to the old show, a tip of the hat to the characters, a nod in direction of this town, these people, and also to give it a sense of never closure. That's that word which there's never going to be closure. But it's ongoing. And watching it, I think they succeeded. And now as you mentioned in sort of the lead up to the movie being released, it's been revealed publicly that David Milch has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And what did that do to just the feeling on set and even maybe the way you treated the character? Well, my father passed away from that particular illness, and it's a devastating thing to be told by anybody. So I can only feel for David and Rita and his entire family. But this is the early stages. I mean, Swearingen, I think, and Bullock are a combination of Milch's own personalities. Maybe Swearingen a little more because of the devious and capricious nature which David has. But Bullock's as crazy as Swearingen in his own way. I mean, playing David in a sense, not the same thing. It's just Al's damage from something else. Al's damage from, you know, you can't drink two pints of rot gut every day and expect to be the same guy. But um, still retains his steely-eyed vision of the town, whatever, even though he's, he's mellowed a little, whatever, and Bullock hasn't, but... Again, that's Sheriff Seth Bullock, played by Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, I thought they did really well with... Because coming back to that and trying to get something just for the sake of it would have been terrible. And that's why I think after that many years, they finally found something, and Casey Bloys, the HBO guy, came and said, fine, we'll do this. And then they found they could get us together. At the end of last year, we all were free. And that was the important thing. They could have made a movie at any time of, like, the adventures of Seth and Al, whatever. But it wouldn't be the same without everybody else, because Deadwood was not a two-person vehicle. It, it was much more than that. I mean, everybody in that show is, I think, incredible. Now, why do you think you have such a connection to Al? What does the character mean to you? The combination of wearing a gray hat, not wearing a black or a white hat. I mean, I think that came into in the late 90s with the advent of shows like Oz, which was a great show. The Wire tends to get all the credit, but Oz was extraordinary, I thought. And then The Sopranos culminated in Gandolfini portraying wonderfully that the mixture of the good guy, the bad guy, family man, whatever. Deadwood was a town, every kind of pimp, hustler, racketeer in the world was sent there. And only a few would survive. Al just was very good at that. And then Law came in in Bullock. They both recognized in each other qualities that they would take care of the town. But there was this unspoken deal between them that they would run one side of the street and he would run the other side of the street and wouldn't get in each other's way. Character-wise, no, I've never had a better character to play. I never will, I don't think. I mean, American Gods, Mr. Wednesday is of the same ilk. Maybe they're brothers from another mother. And as an actor, you're supposed to get richer and better as you get older, you know, and luckily the parts are still around. And now the profanity of the show, Mm. it's always just been next level, but there's something poetic about it. There's something beautiful about it. And now do people stop you on the street and ask you to cuss at them? Yeah, they did. I tended to sort of shy away from that one just because, I mean, you know, go comment. 
some couple that said, well, could you just call me a I said, no, or could you ride on this? You got what? No. And also the fact that the people tended to think that you made that up as you went along when in fact it was all Milch's dialogue. You put one in there out of place, you I mean, David wouldn't allow that. The writer of that caliber, you don't around with the dialogue. I mean, you know, it was all carefully calibrated and, and beautifully done. But you've had such a long career. Yeah. I mean, first of all, starting out as an actor, a young actor in London in the early, mid-60s, I can only imagine, it must have felt like the center of the universe at that point. My first job was doing a movie, The Wild and the Willing, and then I did a stage play, which I was swearing even then. It's called Infanticide in the House of Fred Ginger, and it was at a theater club because then you, were, you couldn't swear in the West End. So this was a play with profanity in it. It preceded Edward Bond's play, Saved, by about six months. It was a better play, actually. But it was John Hurt, Tony Beckley and me played three teddy boys who kill a baby, give it gin, drink it to death. So it was a, but it was a fascinating play. So we did that, and Johnny Hurt, who was my lifelong friend, whatever. Then we, then we, I did a TV play, a live armchair theater, because then the writing on English television was extraordinary. Robert Muller, David Mercer the writers that changed the face of British television from armchair theatre to play for today. Talk about the golden age of TV. That was, I think, England's golden age. Americans was the 50s. Then England was the 60s, all this terrific stuff, the new medium. And doing it live, I did The Caretaker live on TV. So, yeah, there were some very exciting times. You know, somebody said, do you retire? You go, Why would you retire? I mean, no. And luckily, the parts have got better and better. And Deadwood came along. Sometimes parts have got your name on it. How the hell they didn't find an American to play Al? I mean, you think, originally, because Al wasn't written as British. I mean, I think David put that line in as a token to me, which is kind of funny in the very first pilot. When Jim Beaver says, you're a lady English aristocracy. I said, yeah, well, I'm Which is exactly the way I felt about the English monarchy, of course. <laughs> so David couldn't resist sticking that in there. But to be able to, not only with Deadwood, but now American Gods, the role that you've had in the John Wick pictures, yeah, it must be exciting that with where you are in your life and your career, that the roles are still coming. It's very gratifying. Yeah, especially when they prove to be people like to watch them, like it with John Wick and American Gods and Deadwood. Deadwood's a beloved thing. The others are ongoing. Deadwood feels like... You never say never, you never, I mean, but I think this is the final outing for Al and Seth and company. But I mean, it's what a hell of a way to go out if it is. Do you feel like maybe the sort of lingering feelings you've had with Al in the interim since the original show was canceled, do you feel satisfied? Oh, yeah. I think because, Mark, it never stayed the same. If this two-hour film was just a repetition of an episode of Deadwood, that's not what Milch and all those other titans, David Simon, David Chase, that's not what they do. They tell stories. And that's the great thing about Milch. He's telling a story. And this is the sort of one end of the story. And to see it, that Al had grown in another kind of a way, that he'd matured in his own way. And now with the John Wick movies that you've been in as well, they had a huge opening. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think those movies are, are so popular? Um, people love to see violence on screen. Movies are supposed to take you to another place. And then us being asked to do John Wick, I think actors can see something in a, in a script. And the first script was so tight. And Keanu is one of the great guys in the business, so that wasn't a problem. And he can do all that wonderful physical stuff. Also, it doesn't hurt you having a dead wife, a dead dog, and you've lost your car. 
to be honest, and people would kill a lot for less than that. But this guy and turns out to be the world's top assassin. And so the series has got better as it's got older. Each time you've got to up the ante. That's what the audience wants. Uh, well, it was recently announced there's going to be a fourth oh, movie. Well, they planted the flag. I mean, I think that's what, that's what companies do, don't they? They go, okay, the next John Wick is May 2021. Who the hell else is going to bring out a movie that week? But you're in? Oh, if they did it, I'd love to be. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I breakfast with Keanu this morning. We don't talk about it. We just carry on, you know, other things. It's like Deadwood. You don't, you say, enjoy this, enjoy this, because it doesn't happen very often. And now my last question for you is simply about your voice. Like, you have this just wonderful, deep rumble. It's part of what makes Al, I think, such a notable character. And you have had this voice for a very long time. <laughs> when did you sort of realize that your voice is your voice? I don't know. I think it's as you get older. I mean, I hear myself now in the earlier films you hear, hello, you know, it's sort of matured. But 20 years down the line of lucky strikes, unfiltered, <laughs> camel, I stopped smoking a while ago. But I don't think a bit of booze and a bit of tobacco didn't do any harm to it a few years ago. You know? But it's funny, I didn't realize you had done this voiceover narration for Grace Jones's 1985 oh, yeah. album, Slave yeah. to the Rhythm. I was and it sounds like that. you. <laughs> I get, well, that's good. It's funny, I was sitting in a fish and chip shop with my wife in this very, very, very good fish and chip shop called Jeels in London, behind Notting Hill Gate. And that was Trevor Horn, the great producer. Well, you know, loads of stuff over the years. Video killed the radio star, Boggles, all that, and it produced everybody. And he went, Ian, what are you doing after your fish and chips? And I said, well, nothing. He said, well, I need a voiceover. And Orson Welles is dead. He said, come on, let's go back to my studio. So we went back to his studios, which were down the road in Ludbrook Grove. And he played me this. And he said, I've got this intro. Can we do it? And it ended up, yeah. Yeah, Jones, the rhythm, slave to the rhythm. Ian McShane, thank you so much for being here today. Truly, truly a pleasure. Pleasure talking to you, Mark. Thank you. And we'll take a brief break, and I'll be back with director Daniel Minahan. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lucas Peterson, LA Times food columnist, and I think you'll be pleased to learn that the LA Times food section has relaunched both online and in print. We have excellent recipes, outstanding reviews, unbelievable local food news, all for you at the very affordable price of 99 cents for the first four weeks for online access and $1.99 per week after that. Find our content online every day and in print on Thursdays. Go to latimes.com slash hungryla to subscribe. George Hearst Esquire, Colossus of Commerce, Junior Senator from California, who since our paths last crossed, has went from strength to stronger strength still. <laughs> Even as you name And now for the second part of our conversation. Back in the day, Deadwood was often overshadowed by HBO giants, The Sopranos, and The Wire, but it was critically acclaimed. It's even been called an unfinished masterpiece. And I'm joined now by Daniel Minahan, the director of Deadwood the Movie. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And now you had directed episodes through all three seasons of the series of Deadwood. Now, when did you first find out that the movie was even happening? Well, I guess after the series was unexpectedly canceled, about two years later, this script came to me. My agent slipped it to me and he said, guess what, they're making a Deadwood movie because the series had been so unceremoniously ended. And that must have been about 10 years ago. Since then, there have been different iterations of the script, and David Milch continued to work on it. And people would ask about it every year, 
but it never came to be. And it wasn't until I had a call from our producer, Carolyn Strauss, last spring and said, hey, are you interested in working on this that I jumped in? What did you make of that sort of the script that you went into production with? In particular, it has these themes of grappling with the future. And it's, it's interesting to me that it's not something that's looking back. It's still something that's very much looking forward. It's interesting. It's a delicate balance. And I thought David's concept for it was so exciting because on the one hand, the town of Deadwood is poised to enter legitimacy. South Dakota is going to become a state. And at the same time, the person who delivers this and kind of like welcomes them into the union is George Hurst, who is our villain. And through that, all of these old resentments and conflicts are brought up and you kind of see the community and our, our heroes kind of struggling between doing the right thing and doing it the Deadwood way. So that was really exciting to me. The thing that really surprised me when I read it was that there's a kind of remorse in a Western, even though we don't describe ourselves as a Western or in this kind of a story, even in Deadwood, there's very little remorse. I mean, people were sort of unceremoniously murdered. You know, Al Swearingen would flick his blade out and slash someone's throat. Well, here, 12 years later, we see the sort of remorse that these people have. There was a person who was sacrificed for the community, and everyone had a hand in it in some way, whether it was literally in in hiding it, whether it was the murder, whether it was just this sort of sin of omission of letting it happen. It has like these repercussions. And that's the thing that really did me about the script, because it was something that we hadn't seen before on Deadwood, really. And then when you say that you, you don't describe Deadwood as a Western, what do you mean by that? I think that's how most people relate to it. Well, it's interesting. Right from the start, when I came to work on the series, it was this mandate from David Milch that we would avoid all the tropes of a Western, whether it be the off-tune piano in a remote place or the standoff on the street. This was a story that took place in the 19th century, and it just happened to be somewhere in the West. And one of the main references for us early on was McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the Robert Altman film. Beautiful film, also set in, in the Northwest, but in the Pacific Northwest. That's also described as sort of an anti-Western. And that was an exciting challenge to do genre, but to subvert it that way. For you, with directing the movie, what was it like going from being one of a sort of group of directors who are cycling through with the series to being the sole director of Deadwood the movie? Was that a challenge? Getting tapped for the movie was really exciting, and I jumped at the opportunity to work with David and the cast again. When I got there and saw the backlot street stripped down and we realized we were starting from scratch and it was all on me. That was pretty intimidating. But Deadwood was a place where I was constantly challenged as a director. It was one of the first things that I did. And David Milch, you know, gave me a chance to work on it. And we did good work together. And I had done a movie and I had written screenplays, but I had very little experience in production. And so it was interesting going back there all these years later. I've got like a lot of experience under my belt now, but it just reminded me of, you know, 
these are the people who sort of mentored me in a way. And so that was really nice. I felt a huge responsibility, but I also felt very supported. And then tell me just about recreating the town. I know that some of the buildings, I think, were still at the back lot. A lot of things had to be built from scratch. What was that process like of just recreating the town of Deadwood? Well, we weren't just recreating the town, but we were recreating it 12 years later. So there was a lot to be changed. You know, everything from the buildings would have been brick. And so we bricked some of the buildings, put a brick facade on some of them to make it seem like it was being built up. We put electric lights in that kind of petered out halfway down the main thoroughfare. And we just tried to populate the town in a different way. We had delivery men instead of miners running willy-nilly all over the streets. And the vendors weren't spilling out into the streets like a bazaar. We tried to make it more organized. So there was a conscious effort to build on what we had, but to show that there was a passage of time and we just ran electrical wires all over the place, at least to the businesses that would have had them. And so Maria Queso, who was our original production designer on the series, came to it and did a lot of research and had a strong connection to the Deadwood Museum and the Historical Society there. So we have great photo references for what the town would have looked like in 1889. How true to life is the presentation of the saga of the town of Deadwood to the real story? Is that something that you guys even care about? David always took a lot of license. These are real characters. Most of them are real characters. Everyone from Elsewhere Engine to Dan Doherty and Obviously, George Hurst is a a real historical character, but I think he took or we took, you know, license to tell the story that we wanted to tell of the kind of growing pains of this community. And then just reassembling this cast. I mean, it's interesting how terrific the cast seemed on the original series, but in the years since, I mean, they've sort of scattered and almost become this sort of uh, Avengers of prestige TV where they've gone off to so many other really high-profile shows and, and getting that cast back for the show, just the raw scheduling logistics of it must have really been a challenge. It was a very tight schedule because of people's availabilities, but but the actors really wanted to do it and they made the space for it. So that was a real testament to their devotion to the series and the characters and to, and to David Milch. Everybody there really wanted to be there. And uh, our producers somehow, Greg Feinberg and Carolyn Strauss and Linda Motto really worked it so that this alignment of the planets took place and the movie finally happened. In a lot of the press that's been happening around the movie, there's been a lot of talk about how the original series had this kind of creative chaos around it. Like it was not made in a sort of a conventional way. And for the movie that had to just for reasons of scheduling and production had to kind of become a little more conventional. Was that difficult for you and somehow keeping the feel of what Deadwood was, but maybe getting it a little more sort of like organized and on track? Interestingly, the tension for me in every one of the scenes, and I would say this to the actors and I would say it to the cinematographer and the camera operators, it was like I wanted to feel the tension between order and chaos in every frame. And that was what I was gleaning from the script. Normally, we had a campus sort of situation where David would rehearse uh, with us. He would go away. He would come back. He would look at what we were doing. He would adjust it. 
He would, in some instances, rewrite it from scratch. We didn't have that luxury, but somehow I feel like we found a way of doing it that suited the material. But it was a very different experience. There were days on the original series where we would come in and just be handed pages. People would have a five-page walk and talk. I remember shooting things like that where someone would walk from one end of the town to the other and back. And they were learning them in their trailers just before they went on. It gave it like a kind of a life. It was kind of like a... It wasn't improvisational by any means, but it really had that kind of uh, spontaneity. And so was it a challenge with the, the movie? How did you sort of get that same sense of spontaneity in life? Well, I think the characters are older and wiser. The amazing thing is that we did play it as 10 years later. So we didn't have to try to make people look younger or we didn't play it as 20 years later. So we didn't have to make them look older. I think there was just something inherent in the material and in the actors and who they are now that gave it a different feel. But you saw their old ways kind of like boiling underneath. It was exciting. And how well did everybody kind of slip back into their characters? Was, was there any kind of a period of adjustment? Interestingly, people fell right in. I think people were really primed for it. And the actors had time to prepare it. The only thing that I would encourage them was not to over-prepare, to keep it a little bit alive and a little bit dangerous for them. So, no, nobody really had any trouble with it. And our new cast members fell right in, too. I mean, they were very excited. You know, we had Jade Pettyjohn, who came as this ambitious young woman who came to town. We had the grown-up Sophia who was the adopted daughter of Alma. And then we had a couple of uh, henchmen that came to town that were, you know, worked for Hearst. They were assassins. But everybody really just were able to swing with it. It was cool. One thing I'm so taken with the movie is how I feel like a lot of times when people now, they talk about movies and they say, oh, this should seem like it was an extended series. Like they feel like there's too much story stuffed into the movie. And here it seems like it's just right. Like there's sort of just enough story in this movie. And even though, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything, there's a funeral, there's a wedding, there's many deaths, there's obviously a lot of swearing. And But it doesn't feel like it's overstuffed. It's not as if you feel like, oh, I wish there was four more episodes. Tell me about sort of like getting the story structured and the idea of like just how much should happen in this, you know, one hour and 50 minute visitation to Deadwood. A lot of the work, or let's say the lion's share of the work on the story had been done before I came in. We went through it, you know, in detail once I came on board and started to prep it. But we had a bit more material that we did shoot, and we very judiciously kind of focused it. But I guess if you feel that way, then we did a good job. We tried not to hit anything too hard. I mean, in the style of Deadwood, we wouldn't announce the characters, right? We would make it seem like they'd been there the whole time, or that they did come to town for this big event, the statehood celebration that they were living like full lives and we didn't need to reintroduce them. I think for some people that might be disorienting, but it really is the Deadwood style, like let the audience catch up. Television shows are really sort of like this culture of the showrunner and Deadwood very much was always received as kind of a product of David Milch. And yet a movie is more typically seen as sort of like the product of the director. And tell me about for you coming to this movie that's coming from a television show, did you feel an impulse to somehow kind of put your 
stamp on it? Like, how did you feel in directing this movie version of the series? It was a delicate balance because it was always our hope that people who had never seen the series could watch it and would be intrigued and want to go back and experience the whole three seasons. But I also wanted it to feel self-contained. I made a lot of effort towards giving you just enough information so that you would feel all the emotional beats of these characters and not wonder where they came from or, or what their relationship was to the other characters. David was there every day and he was there to support us and he kind of got us started every day with a beautiful kind of little meditation on the day's work that he would have prepared for us. And then he just let us do our thing. He really trusted us. It was interesting because over the three seasons, what happened for me personally was I feel like I earned David's trust. So when he agreed to let me direct the movie version of his series, I kind of felt I was prepared and that I had his support. I remember something back in the very last season we were shooting this huge action sequence, which really wasn't our style. It was a big fight between one of Swearingen's henchmen and Hearst's henchmen. And it took place in the street. And uh, it was one of the only things we really ever had time to prepare, but only because it was absolutely necessary to prepare something so elaborate. But it was just these two guys beating each other to a pulp. And it went on and on and on. And, and we knew we wanted it to go on for too long. We knew we wanted them to get tired. We knew we wanted it to be sloppy and unchoreographed feeling. And there was this moment where David came to set. I said, okay, let's run it for David. The guys ran through the whole thing. And he said, okay, I'll be in the writer's room if you need me. And he went away. And then I said, okay, great, I've got it. And then from then on, I felt he'd sort of handed the mantle to me in a way like, we were allowed to work unsupervised without him there. Of course, he came to see it when we staged it. But I felt confident that I had his trust and his support. And we went through the whole script together, page by page, before we went into production. So I had a really good sense of what he had in mind. In the run-up to the release of the movie, it's been announced that David Milch has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I just have to ask how that sort of impacted the making of the movie, both for sort of the production, but just emotionally as well. Really, we didn't know what it was that was troubling David until they announced his diagnosis. He was very present on set, and you could feel there was a difference in him, but he really showed up for us. It was sort of like a, an unspoken truth on the set in a way. And I feel like it really informed the actors in a big way. People were very emotional. It was very important to everybody to please him and do this right. But it was also, it was very sad knowing that he wasn't in his full capacity. And did that make you feel in some way that even more so that you were some sort of a conduit for him, that you were sort of acting in his stead in some way? David's uh, approach was always a teaching approach. He always felt like as much as he was trying to communicate to you what it was that we were doing, what was on the page and how he envisioned it, there was a huge amount of mentoring that went on for everyone to recall that stuff when we were on set. I would be reminded of things that we had done back in the day and wisdom that he would impart on us and we just tried to apply it to every, to every scene. 
And then as you, you mentioned earlier, you and your career have moved from working in independent film into directing television. And it's interesting to me that I would imagine that when you're directing an episode of The Assassination of Gianni Versace or House of Cards or Game of Thrones, that you have more money and resources than you have had when you've been working in independent film. And so for you, do you see some clear-cut distinction between working in film and working in television? How have those things maybe sort of like bled together in some way for you? I've talked to director friends who also came up through, you know, indie films. And there's something very similar because in series where you have horses and dragons and seemingly endless resources for set dressing, and there's still a very real schedule that you have to adhere to, to make your days. And you have to make very clear-cut decisions. And there's something great about uh, the training that I had working in indie movies, which I think transfers directly across into series. You don't really get that much more time working on a big set on a series. You still have to make smart choices to tell your story the best way you can. So I see the two as being more similar than different. I gravitated towards series because uh, I'm very attracted to writers and strong writers and people with a voice. And I've been able to work with people like Alan Ball and David Benioff and David Milch and Tom Rob Smith. And that's usually what guides my choices in series. Do you have a favorite moment in the movie? I have so many, but I think my two favorite scenes in the movie are the one where Al Swearingen sits with Doc Cochran and he discusses the reality of his mortality. And they sit there and in the end of it, he gives him a spoonful of morphine so that he can make it to Trixie's wedding. There's something so poignant about it. It's beautiful language. It's beautifully performed. All I did was sit back and kind of like let it play out in the shot. But it had a very strong resonance, I think, for everyone. Because I think a lot of what David writes about comes from his own life. And I think at this moment, David's really thinking about his own mortality and struggling with that. And I think that's a really beautiful scene. And, and it was one of those moments on set where your, you know, hairs on the back of your neck kind of stand up and everybody kind of feels like it's a significant scene. So that was one of my favorites. And the reunion between Calamity Jane and Joni Stubbs is such a classic scene and it's so much about what they're not saying and Robin Weiger and Kim Dickens performed it so well and it suggests this huge passage of time the estrangement of these two women and their love for each other and their cruelty towards each other all in one long scene and that's my other favorite I know for you where are things kind of left at the end of the movie? Like, could you see there being another Deadwood movie or do you feel like this has really brought the sort of saga of Deadwood to a close? It depends on who you talk to. I've been reading stuff that says, well, it's the perfect ending and there's no way to ever continue on. But then when I talk with Ian McShane, we both agree that Al Swearingen's not dead. So I don't think he's going anywhere soon. So... I know it would make a lot of people really happy to continue on. I think that it has so much possibility. 
And one thing that I think has really come through from everyone that's worked on the show and the movie is just how much it's meant to you. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why everyone made this effort to come back together to make the movie. Why is that? What is it about Deadwood that kind of makes this show special? I think because we all were pressed to do our best work and we all had to do scary, ugly, fantastic things that we never would have done anywhere else. And uh, it was a real feeling of community. Greg Feinberg is this genius producer and he found a way to support David, which was to create a kind of a campus for us. And anything could be ready at any time and anything could happen. An incredible growing experience for everyone. And it really forced you to do your best work. And sometimes in series and in movies and in theater, you kind of feel like people don't necessarily want to be there. This was a place where everybody wanted to be there all the time. And so the the project is Dead with the Movie. Uh, We've been talking with director Daniel Minahan. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Mark. And that's it for this week's show. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. You can find me on Twitter at IndieFocus. This episode was produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin. What's the move, Al? You ever think Bullock of not going straight at a thing? No. No.